mission to uncover opera, 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 diva Hello friends, welcome back to Operation Opera. Alisa and I had a chance to chat with opera director Alan Hicks, who's a dear friend of mine, all about things relating to being a student and coming out of the university system, and do you go to grad school right away, and how much does acting influence what we do, and how much can it, and what can art actually be, all kinds of good stuff, so enjoy. So Alan, so just to start off, maybe introduce yourself and to tell us a little bit about sort of your story and, you know, what has led you to where you are and yeah. Oh, that's a... That's, that's a really a, big question, I know. <laughs> that's a big question. Well, um, my name is Alan E. Hicks. I am a stage director and I started out my career as a singer. Um, well, actually, if I go back in time, I started out my career playing French horn in high school. Um, and in high school, I, I played a lot of instruments, actually, and thought I was going to be a band director in my native Mississippi. Um, I totally see that. Sorry, go on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know how to feel about that. Um, <laughs> I, I eventually uh, sort of lost, um, uh, became... Uh, the, the idea of becoming a band director in my native Mississippi lost its luster uh, when I was in college about ha- actually only about two years into studying to get a music education degree. I, I just sort of um, went on a journey and tried to find um, a new creative outlet. And I, <laughs> I changed my major to advertising for a hot minute and uh, – Ooh. And then to English because I thought I wanted to be a writer. And none of those things really stuck because I, I just music was where I wanted to be. So I uh, stumbled into a, a, a voice teacher's office and in uh, at my university. And I said, can I sing for you? And I sang for her. And I said, do you think I could do this for a living? And she said, <laughs> I have a very clear recollection of her not saying yes. She just said, no, you can study with me. Um, and <laughs> So what does that mean? Oh, we've all had those experiences. <laughs> and that's actually how I got started as a singer. And um, I, I really intended to be, uh, uh, my degree was in music education, my undergraduate degree, and I was going to be a choral music teacher. And then uh, I'd won a couple of competitions in, in school. And I thought, well, maybe I should um, audition to be a vocal performance major uh, in my master's degree program. And and if anyone gives me a scholarship to go, I will go to uh, school as a, in in singing, and that's what happened. I ended up at Rice University, and um, then at the end of that sort of two-year track, I thought, well, I'm going to audition for a bunch of young artist programs, and if anyone hires me, I'll go and see how far this takes me. And that's how I went through my singing career, pretty much. Um, and uh, I was living in New York City, and. Um, decided at some point that, uh, well, actually I had been told that I was probably a tenor and that I needed to make the transition from baritone to tenor. And I thought, well, I will take some time off to, uh, try to become a tenor and study. And in the meantime, I took a couple of jobs teaching and acting conservatories in New York city and the tenor, um, track did not end well. It just, I was not a tenor. Um, but I kind of felt like maybe I didn't really have a place in the business because everybody thought I was a tenor, but I obviously wasn't. Um, and at that point I had gotten more interested in acting technique that I was studying and working with, um, 
theater actors in New York City mostly, and decided that I wanted to go back in school to back to school to get a degree in directing, um, and that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. Uh, it was a circuitous route. Sure, sure. I, I had this thought. I had this question as you were talking about how important do you think it is for young singers to take time in between an undergraduate and graduate degree to kind of like reassess where they are? Um, well, you know, the interesting thing is, uh, this isn't a normal process. We're, you know, as singers, we're not ready to be on stage making money in our profession, usually until our thirties. And so there's a lot of time to bide and, and, uh, graduate programs are a good way to do that. Young artist programs are a good way to do that. But sometimes, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of young singers think I have to get through this so that I can get out and start making money, but don't realize that even once they're through with the master's degree program, the, the, the chances are not going to be making money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The chances that they could sustain themselves at that point, just singing are not that high at that right then. So they have time. And I often, I teach at a university now and I've taught at several universities and I've always counseled them to not rush and to take their time to stay, to, to do programs in Europe as much as they can, you know, pay to sing as we call them in the business, um, and to study languages and to not be in a rush to get out there because that's, I fear that a lot of talented young singers, when they're 25 and can't get sustainable work, they start to look for the exit and that's not a good it's just not realistic. Um, as we all know, most of us that have careers, our careers didn't really, we didn't get to a point of sustainability until we were well into our thirties. So I, I tend to believe that people should not rush. Taking gap years, I think is a great thing. If you want to work and pay off some student debt or save up some money so that you can actually go out and do things uh, when you go back or going back to graduate school with money saved up is always a good thing. I mean, we we tend to stay away from the financial conversation, but I really believe that especially for artists, the, the less money we owe when we get out of graduate school, the better off we are. I agree. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, the, I, I feel like it's such a it's so easy in being a performer to get into huge amounts of debt because the education itself is very expensive. And then, you know, when we're done, it's not like being, a, you know, we talk about this a lot, like it's not like being um, an attorney. And it maybe even that isn't a fair thing anymore. You know, since 2008, I feel like, you know, that there's no actual, um, I don't know that there are many careers now where, you know, if you put in a lot of money and a lot of effort and time for a few years, then when you get through with it, you're going to have a job at the end that's going to make you a lot of money. I feel like that doesn't, you know, that sort of paradigm has shifted, which I think it's also sort of shifted our ideas about, you know, what does it mean to develop a career? Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that benefits us a little bit in that it's no longer, I think that the, the norm is not to get out with an undergraduate degree and go straight into a job that you do for 40 years and then retire with a pension. That norm has shifted. And so it, it, it's better for us, but it's also worse because so many more students are getting out of school with tremendous amounts of debt, which they're buried under. And of course, as you know, when you have a tremendous amount of student debt, you can't 
pay for lessons. You can't travel to New York to for auditions or travel to wherever, or you, you can, but then you're just going more and more into debt. And at a certain point it becomes overwhelming. Um, and it's something we don't talk about in to young singers enough. I think I, I, I tend to do it in my school because I, I've, really found value in getting out and going to Europe and studying languages and just getting in touch with the culture there. And once you are in graduate school and you're paying your own bills or out of graduate school, it becomes infinitely harder to do. So I always counsel them to try to do it as an undergraduate, because at least then you have, if you assume debt to do it, you have time to pay it off. Um, And there are a lot more programs in which Schools are attached to programs in Europe that you can get scholarship funding or credit or something that makes it more value added. Um, So I I tend to counsel my students all the time to do it now. Don't wait until you're in graduate school because then you'll never do it or it'll be many, many years before you get there. Study the languages which you need um, and get in touch with the culture. There's so many things that if we do them in our undergrad, right, that are just not cute, like they're just not really fun. They're not things that you want to do. Like you're talking about learning languages. Like, Elisa, you you learned to speak Italian when you were like, what, 22? You know, learning languages, learning to read notes, all of those things. Like my, I remember my freshman year of college, it was like, ready? Here's how to learn music. And I feel like I was completely buried in everything I needed because as a singer, I was at such a disadvantage because so much of our learning comes later where, when it doesn't have to be that way. I feel like if you know you want to be a singer, you should be taking language courses really, really Mm. intensely knowing how much to sort of front load an education when it comes to being a singer, because I remember being a young singer and thinking, I just want to sing. That's all I want to do. I want to get up and I want to sing stuff. I want to learn music and I want to sing it. But a career requires so much more than that. And then I was talking, Elisa, about how you you were studying pretty intensely in your 20s, these other languages. And I know in high school we take languages, blah, 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 right? But it's not... It's not the same, right? As yeah. like immersing yourself in a culture. It, yeah. It's not the level that we need <laughs> high school. Right. The, right. Unless you're in like a freaking amazing high school and you have all these AP courses and you're actually learning to speak the language, it's not going to be enough to be like, oh, look, that means the. <laughs> so, yeah. <right>? Well, <laughs> and I think that, I mean, you have to. Yes, there there is benefit in taking those classes earlier and earlier and earlier. But until you uh, immerse yourself in, you know, the you're not going to learn the language until you're there. And you're also I mean, there are certain things that I learned about being in Europe and going to European opera houses that are different than American opera houses. And and the, the the benefit to being in Germany and auditioning for the Germ, uh, in the German system, which is so much different than ours, and so many young singers making their careers there, you just don't know that until you go. And these are things that that I think we don't talk enough about to students. But then I find that sometimes students don't listen because all they can see are the dollar signs and how much it costs and how they have to work during the summer and how they can't, you know, take the time off or that they're going on vacation with their parents. And I I run into these things all the time. And and I think to myself, guys, listen, I felt the same way when I was your age, but trust me, I'm on the other side of it now. And looking back, 
I realized the mistakes that I made, and that's why I'm counseling you thus, because I made every mistake there was that could be made, so I know what they are. Um, and of course, you know, the, I, I get it because when people were telling me the same thing at that age, I never listened either. Um, but un- it's unfortunate that it, it and it's cyclical that way. But yes, we do have to do those things. And with regards to taking a gap year or gap time between undergraduate and graduate programs, I don't see that there's a problem with that. In fact, I think it's a good thing for people to come back, especially in the arts, slightly older. Um, and not right out of a, uh, a graduate program, uh, undergraduate program. I, I did take, I actually took five years between my undergrad and my master's. And um, there were a variety of reasons for that. But in the interim, I spent a year and a half in Italy and learned to speak Italian and came to love that culture and understand opera better um, in ways that I never would if I hadn't lived there. And by the time that I I came back, I had made a decision to go to graduate school. And I, too, there are many things that I would have done differently, you know, if I had known back then. And that's another reason why we have these podcasts is to sort of help help those young people to kind of have some some more direction than they may otherwise have. Perspective. I think there are people in our field who grow up with. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that there are people who grow up with um, with music teachers or people with an operatic background in their family or even their parents, you know, and so they sort of already know certain things that someone without that just can't know. And so you're sort of just off we go into the wild blue yonder. It's, I don't know. That's the phrase that comes to mind somehow, <laughs> but um, yeah. And so I think it's good for us to share our experiences so that we can kind of, um, help others to see it, it's still hard to see when you're young, even when someone tells you about it. But, um, you know, if you can try to be open to it, um, it can be really helpful. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. One of the things that I tell my students all the time is that one thing you have to, in order to learn, one thing you have to accept is that you don't know things. And, <laughs> and so you have to accept that you, you don't know anything or you can't actually be open to what's being said to you and, and the things that you're learning. And, and I tell them all the time, you're going to get conflicting information. And, and of course, it's then up to you to use your brains to, to figure out what you think is the truth and who you believe and who you trust and where the evidence is. But until you say, I don't know. That's why I'm here. And I deal with this a lot in undergraduate school. Well, I deal with this a lot in universities, the people that come to school feeling like they already know things and are and because they have that wall set up, they're not going to accept um, new information. Uh, and what and I find this a lot because my specialty is acting and acting technique. And I find that there is a good percentage of students who, for whatever reason, do not believe that it's important and do not believe and only believe in the technique that they have been taught in the past and don't believe in this new idea. Um, and I run into that actually in the profession as well. When people call me to say, we want you to come do a master class and we want you to sit there and listen to singers sing their arias and then work with them on acting. And I say, no, I'm not going to do that because working with them for 20 minutes without a basis of understanding of what acting technique 
traffic is, is not going to be helpful. It might help them. They're basically, I'm basically then just choreographing their aria. I'm not actually teaching them how to learn the craft. And I've run into that in the past and just had to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. That's not going to be beneficial. Yeah. It's a paycheck for me, but I, I would rather them actually learn something than, you know, me just stand up and bloviate. It's interesting. I was having a conversation about this. Stand up and, what did you say? Bloviate. Um, it's, what a, you know. it's a big word. It's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what it means. I, I heard blow the apes. That's what I heard. It for. Yeah. Like, okay. There's I a mean, meme for you. There was kind of a pause. And then I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ask what yeah. that means. Okay. Wax eloquent about, you know, nonsense that uh, I guess is, is, you know, more accurate than bloviate. But yeah, just, you know, that it's, I find that a lot in the, in my specialty. Um, but I also find it a lot, you know, with, it's interesting. I don't see that as much on the music side as I do on the theater side. And it's a part and parcel of the fact that opera has, you know, for for dec- uh, centuries, been considered a musical art form when it wasn't created as a musical art form. It was created as a theatrical art form, and we lost that. And so, what we get are stu- what I get a lot are students who um, have a fear of this thing that they don't know, or their ability to be good actors, or they've been told by someone like a voice teacher from uh, previous generations when it really honestly didn't matter if you just stood there and sang your aria and walked off, um, that they've been told that it's not important. And so they come in with this idea, this is not important. This is just a lot of extra work for me to do. But even to me, even as, but even if it's the work, that, sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah. Even if you believe that to be true and, if you want to be an artist, wouldn't you want to be the best artist you can be? Um, so. Absolutely. That's something that Elisa talks about, you know, the inspiration to sort of start this whole thing with us was watching the performance of Joyce Tironato uh, singing Maria Stuarta and that complete conviction of character. Is that, is that accurate, Elisa? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, she was fantastic. Spellbinding. It was uh, it was the perfect marriage between uh, musicality and like emotional motivation from the character. It was breathtaking. I was totally, totally engaged the entire time, which I had never experienced before at the opera <laughs> in all my years. There there were moments here and there, you know, and uh, but that with her it was just every time she opened her mouth, it was like, Oh, okay. So she's like really into this and she's really, she's really committed. She understands the character. She is the character. And not only that, but you know, the, the, the singing was just right in her wheelhouse. So all of it came together really, really beautifully the way that it should in opera, in my opinion. Well, and, and what I uh, tend to talk to students about when I do get um, resistance is that when you understand the characters, what the characters wants and and what they're trying to achieve and what the whys of of the the greater scheme of what they're doing in the scene or in the the show then it actually changes the way you learn the music and it changes the way you interpret the music it changes the way you say the words it changes which words you emphasize it changes your understanding of why the composer wrote 
this the way he wrote it, why the librettist used this particular word. It's, and you have to start that process before you start learning notes because you have to read the libretto and you have to figure out what your character is about, answer Uta Hagen's nine questions. You have to figure out what their uh, super objective is, what their objectives in each scene are, and then start learning the notes because oh. then it changes the way you learn the notes and the accuracy with which you learn. Them. See, see, it's interesting. Uta Hagen was a student of Stanislavski, right? And so, she, right, uh, she went one way. Um, who else? We have um, Strasbourg went one way. And then there's the other guy who just makes you repeat everything back and forth. It drives me crazy. Meisner. Meisner. Um, like, right. He's so, actually a favorite of mine, by the way. Really? Oh, man. Yeah. Because his whole idea was that uh, is, is remaining in the moment. Yeah, right? it's really listening. I guess what yeah. drove me crazy was like, why aren't you people listening to each other? Clearly. Like, right. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, it all starts with Stanislavski. Modern acting technique all starts with Stanislavski. And what happened is he wrote this book about his own struggles to that point. And then he continued to sort of hone this all the way until his death. And it wasn't until his third book that he really landed on what it was that he was trying to get to. But by that time, other schools had already split off from him. So Strasbourg had you know, decided that Stanislavski's uh, original work on emotional recall was it. That was it. And he would not hear that Stanislavski had moved on. Um, Hagen went a different way. Her whole thing was about justification. And so really understanding the character and like delving into the physical uh, and emotional attributes of the character. So in Udo Hagen's work, you deal a lot more with what physical impairments a character might have um, and things like that, that will definitely tell you something about the character, but it's more external. And Stanislavski's work was much more internal. It was more about, I want this, there is this standing in my way, and I do this in order to get around that obstacle and get what I want. And once I have achieved what I want, that is, I move on to the next thing. And then all of that, is uh, there's an umbrella over all of that, and it's what we call the super objective, the, the idea that a person wants, at, at the moment that you meet them, they, are, they want something in their life, um, love or security or something they want. Um, and then each scene, well, then there's the objective for the work itself, whatever the opera is, the play, whatever. And that objective um, is then broken down into smaller bits, which is an interesting apocryphal story about the the, the term beats and how um, we started referring to uh, acting beats because <laughs> there's a story of Stanislavski and his thick accent saying the word bits, which is what he thought of as parts of speech, like sentences, paragraphs, and how you break things down into the, you analyze them. Exactly. Like you, the, the adage, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It's the same idea. It's a bit. And then that his accent, some American audiences thought he said beats and that's how we got the word beats. I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, and in acting beats. Yeah. It's pretty musical. So there you go. Oh man. 
and in my work, I actually separate those things into two different things. A bit is a, a, a chunk of, or a, a complete thought, whereas a beat is where something changes in between two complete thoughts. Well, that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And so it gives you sort of a, a an anchor point for which you're, you're working. And um, that's kind of the way he analyzed the works, the characters, what's happening in the thing. And, and that's a lot of my work is based on his late work, but I do use exercises from all of his work. And that's, you know, usually where you start to have to justify to students, okay, we're doing this emotional recall exercise, but I understand that you can't, you can't live there, man. (laughs) Right. You can't. Yeah. You can't sing high notes and sob uncontrollably. That's just not where we're headed. This is a rehearsal technique. Sword Angelica. Close. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, sometimes they write it in, but it, yeah. It's interesting. Like you said that you primarily go through Uta Hagen's nine sort of states. Is that correct? Um, questions. Questions. Nine the questions. nine questions. And mm-hmm. that her work is primarily from the outside in, which I feel like is a much safer way to approach acting when you're singing. Um, I disagree because what you end, uh, end up with is a mask. Um, it's uh, that to me is akin to I'm putting on um, a baseball uniform. Now I'm a professional baseball player. What I need, what I do is now that, that is that pre, uh, that sort of assumes that, all acting work is extraordinarily emotional and it's not all extraordinarily emotional. Um, so what you're, what you're really looking at is in the Stanislavski work is what the character wants in any given moment and what they're, what they do in order to make that happen. Um, and what his whole theory was the audience can only interpret the physical action. They can't interpret what's going on in your head. But all physical action is motivated by an internal desire. Right. And so the idea that um, I'm hungry, I'm going to go to the store and buy food. Or, you know, the physical action is the thing that that is seen by the audience, but you as the performer have to figure out why they are doing those things and what it is they're trying to accomplish. And what it does is it gives you a nice roadmap throughout the entire show for what, what each character in each scene, how that plays into the greater desire or the greater objective. Um, whereas the external stuff, I, I don't discount it. I just don't think it is. It is the you can't go only one direction because then you get a very two dimensional character that ends up with a lot of parking and barking. I wonder, do you find that if you start with that, though, especially with people that are a little bit, you know, nervous or negligent or afraid to go inward, like if you start with, okay, you're an old man, what does that mean? Like, how do you hold your shoulder? Like, is your eye squinty? You know, do you have, you know, rheumatism? Like, what's going on? Like, um, do you find that starting from that place is easier or more difficult? Well, I don't I don't look at it in terms of easier difficult I look at it in terms of what's going to get the best result for the most amount of people because every time I go into a class uh, especially an acting class I'm working with people who've had different levels of training who are coming different backgrounds some of which are coming from different cultures and you find a lot of times that all of those things play into how much um, inhibition or lack of inhibition they're going to have in terms of doing this work. So I actually, it's a full court press for me. I don't, 
I don't call myself a Stanislavskian or a Meisnerian or a this or that or the other. What I did is I studied the, all the acting techniques and all the writings, and I came up with – I pulled things from each individual person and put them all into sort of one idea that I hope will have like the most amount of spaghetti stuck to the wall. Hmm. And so when I go into an acting class, we, we start doing relaxation exercises to, to sort of center people in the room at the moment so that they can focus. We do Meisner exercises. We do repetition. I know how much you love that, but we do repetition <laughs> because it really does focus you into what's happening between you and your, your partner sure. and listen to each other. And then we do when they're doing their prep work, they're doing character analysis. And based on Uta Hagen's work, they're doing uh, script analysis based on Stanislavski. They're doing concentration work based on Meisner. They're doing a lot of different things. The idea is that it won't work. Not each piece will work the same for every person, but something in the grouping will work for almost everyone. Um, and what you find is that people start to feel, figure out for themselves what the best approach for them is. However, I don't think you can do Stanislavski's work without doing Uta Hagen's work. I don't mm -hmm. think you can do Stanislavski's work without doing Meissner's work. Um, I think they're all – because they all came out of the same idea and they all came out of Stanislavski's ideas really. But it's – the only person that I sort of shy away from mostly is Strasberg because I feel like he, he kind of went rogue. Um, and uh, unfortunately, um, the actor studio – the American actor studio is based on Strasberg's interpretation of Stanislavski's work. Mm -hmm. So and it's old his old work before he had really honed it in. So it's a lot of extra stuff that you have to do, but it makes you a better artist. And I think it actually makes better musicians because once things stop being vowels and consonant shapes and start being words and intent, then your body will take over and do more natural things to interpret them. We're thinking, we're thinking Excellent. about everything that you're saying. Yes. <laughs> we're pondering, we're pondering on this. No, it's, it's interesting because I, this is a question that I've had for a while when it comes to acting and, and teaching groups of people, especially young people. And this idea of, of people that have a lot of resistance to it. And for me, acting has always been the vehicle with which I feel the most comfortable to sing because it's like, oh good, I get to be somebody else. You know, I don't have to be as vulnerable with myself. I have to be vulnerable with this person. And I can, you know, that's for whatever reason is easier for me. And or I think of it that way, you know, like you're saying, you, you take bits and pieces depending on, you know, what you need and what works for you. But I've I've found that working with specific um, cultures of people that there's a real challenge and a real hurdle, because especially like, say, with Eastern and Western philosophy and sort of how we approach things, um, it can be a real challenge to to see and feel the emotion of people who come from a culture that is so different. So, Alan, I guess we could talk a little bit about how. So we we met almost 10 years ago, right? Like nine years ago yeah. um, in Arkansas yeah. in the blazing heat of summer in the middle of the snakes and scorpions. Oh, man. And the guy smoking a cigarette while lighting massive fireworks. I'll never forget that. It was a very unique experience that summer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
And you did Carmen. You directed right. Carmen. And then you are now, you're working on Carmen now, yes, with um, San, Diego, San Diego Opera. Is that correct? Uh, we closed, we just closed. Uh, okay. two last Sunday, last Sunday, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And they were so all kind of for, for next year. Cool. And next year you're doing what? Good grief. Um, Lucia, is that right? <laughs> no, I'm directing Aida, oh, okay. um, which is a, a concert staging actually uh, at SDO. And I, there was, uh, I can't really say, but there's might be something else that I'm doing later on in the season. Uh, it hasn't been nailed down yet for SDO. I'm assisting on Barbara Seville. I am directing a Clemenza di Tito in Italy in July, um, Ooh, which I'm right hot. now in the middle of, uh, yeah, well, it's in the mountain, it's in Northern Italy in the mountains. Ooh, nice. Where? Uh, the town is called Primiero. Oh. And it's, um, in the Dolomites. Yeah, exactly. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Wonderful. And oh, not hot. Awesome. I'm very excited about it. Wow. Uh, so that's that's happening. So I'm deep in the throes of making cuts to that show because that's a show that needs to be cut. And um, then after that, so Aida, and then I do uh, an, an opera at San Diego State, which I'm also trying to figure out what we're doing. I've narrowed it down to about three different shows, but I'm now working to figure out which is the best one for the singers and for the space and la, la, la. And no matter what, that's going to be a new show to me. I'm hoping it's going to be in Spanish, um, but hmm. I'm still trying. Uh, I'm, there's an Italian show on the docket, which may end up happening. Who knows? And um, then the – yeah, so there's four new shows and one show that I've done a billion times. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm learning a lot of new music this summer. That's nice. Cool. Yeah. Is good, and a lot of them. I mean, it's it's good stuff, and it's it's San Diego has been really good to me, and I've been really enjoying my time here. And uh, excellent. Um, yeah, exactly. So, and I'm close to LA, so I get to come up and see friends. And That's right. Go do the opera there. Yeah. Yes. I'm glad to hear that San Diego is treating you well. That's excellent because it's a wonderful place to be. And if you're having good experience there, that's even better. So yeah, yeah. San opera is a, is a wonderful company It's filled with a lot of really great people. We're doing a lot of very interesting things. There's a, there's the detour series, which is, um, smaller venues, um, usually one acts or smaller, newer works, things off the mm. beat that has been very popular. Um, and, yeah. Then we have, you know, essentially a main stage season, which is full of masterworks. And uh, it's a good arts town. Um, San Diego State is also a wonderful place. And I, I mean, you know, I never thought I would love California weather, but um, I'm not hating the 72 degrees and sunny. How could you? It's kind <laughs> of magical. Yeah, a little really bit. Is. It is yeah. a little bit magical. Hey, I wanted to ask you, actually, now that we're on the topic, um, I think that... Opera San Diego had a had a brush with death, but it was a while ago now, so maybe you don't know about it. But is everything going well there now as far as the funding and whatever needs to happen to keep an opera company going? Yes. Um, I was aware of what, what um, San Diego people uh, 
lovingly refer to as the event. Um, where <laughs> the company was actually effectively shut down and then rose from the ashes. Yeah. And um, the it was basically saved by the people in the company, the chorus, the board got together and decided we do not want this to go away. Uh, And of course, you know, that we, because of that, our new general director, um, David Bennett, um, has been very focused on making sure that we're sustainable. Um, In fact, we have a new campaign going forward uh, that's... um, three S's and one of them is sore, sustain something or other. I can't remember the third one. Um, so actually, hold on. Sore, <laughs> sustain, salamanders. Yeah. Uh, support. No. Support, uh, save, saver. Yeah, I, uh, I thought I had it written down here. It's not saver. It but <laughs> silent. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's a it's a new campaign going forward, and the idea is that we're really getting ourselves we're we're re- reducing our footprint, but doing more work. In other words, Great. we're not doing, you know, three million dollar um, main stage productions. We're doing, you know, three main stage productions, one of which is a concert concert version, and then uh, a lot of smaller venue works that are are really interesting and new and bring in the theater community. Um, So we're actually doing more stuff. We're just doing it on a smaller budget. And the idea being that we're going to, you know, uh, be able to sustain ourselves further into the future without having to, you know, have these budget issues all the time. And, you know, like any opera company, um, there are years where things are just great. And there are years where things are not so great. And we just have to, you have to plan for the rainy day. Right. And San Diego is doing a really good job of doing that, I think. That's great. I, I think the idea yes. of diversifying, right, diversifying the different kinds of performances that are going on and trying to reach you know, different audiences, you know, different people who would be more interested in this kind of a story versus that kind of a story. I mean, you know, in the production of All is Calm that you did in December, like I freaking drove down from L.A. Mm-hmm. in the middle of the day and was in the car for like forever because I was yeah. so excited to see the show. I was so excited to see your work at the show, but I was and, and because the show is something that I care so deeply about. Um, and and it was right. And this is, I guess, sort of a part of that thing mm-hmm. that San Diego Opera is doing where they're, you know, saying, okay, we're gonna have this and it'll, and, and it was packed. The house was completely packed yeah. on, yeah, on a week, well, weekday evening. We did also three Decembers in um, a high school of the performing arts that was full every night. Um, we next year we're doing three or four uh, different things. Um, one is called the falling and the rising, which is a co-commission between several opera companies in the U S army. Um, and it's about, uh, PTSD and, uh, got a premiere in New York city not too long ago. And so, um, there are a lot of really interesting things that are, you know, outreach to the community of, and of interest to the community. I mean, in the next couple of years, we're going to do probably, we're looking at, you know, Spanish language things. We're looking at lots of different, but also, 
major shows just done on a smaller scale. Uh, and the interesting thing about All is Calm, speaking of which, is that the other day I, I just heard that there are at least two other opera companies who are mounting productions of All is Calm in the next two, two or three years. So they saw it and they go, oh, maybe our audience would appreciate something like that. Um, and they're bringing it to their – I know one has it on their season already. The other one is, is considering it. I don't know if they've announced it or when it's going to be. It might be for 2021. Um, so that is something that a lot of opera companies are doing because it builds interest in the main stage. But it also – there are people that will come to the smaller venue things that are shorter and will thoroughly enjoy themselves and really get something out of it that won't – necessarily come to an Aida or Carmen because it's just too much, like they're overwhelmed by it. Or for whatever reason, it's the time commitment or uh, ticket prices or whatever. So, but some very interesting works are being written basically as chamber operas. I mean, we we tend to forget that a lot of what Britain wrote was chamber opera Mm. that was to be done in small venues. Mm. you know, Peter Grimes, not, notwithstanding, I mean, Turn of the Screw and Albert Herring and a lot of the the Innocence operas, we call them, were done for small venues and were actually touring company shows. The Rape of Lucretia um, were written for touring companies. So there's a lot of even what we consider to be standard repertoire now that was really intended for small audiences. Uh, so anyway, opera companies are doing that. They're successful at it. We're getting a lot of garnering a lot of interest. We're able to reach out to the community and bring in people from that are local, like local artists, local directors, local lighting designers. Uh, everyone on All Is Calm was local. Great. You know, and um, a bunch of my colleagues from SDSU uh, were on the design fact uh, that are on the design faculty also were designers for that show. So it was a really great experience and um we continue to to try to find ways to do those things i wonder if the part of the shift you know the trend moving toward bringing people in that are more local um i mean obviously it's a budgetary thing you know but also i feel like it became so like such a such a way to promote something to say like oh we're bringing in this incredible artist you know to do this role and and certainly there are things in there times for that but the, the idea of the superstar of opera um, for the most part you know kind of isn't there as much like there are there are very few real superstars of opera this these days I feel like and um, being able to utilize what you have around you and being able to um, you know, mount a production like you were saying in a in a space that it was actually intended for will definitely alter the experience for the audience you know, if if it is in the way that it was intended. I guess. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the superstars um, are less. I think you know at the Met level and at you know La Scala. Yes, there are young superstars. I mean, when we think about superstars, we think about people when we came into realizing that they were superstars, they were already well into their careers, um, you know, in their forties and fifties is when we start to think about Joan Sutherland's and, and, and Domingo's and things like that. And, you know, so we don't really tend to pay attention to them until they've had longevity of career. 
there are some young superstars, people that I've worked with in the past who I'm starting to see are just essentially at the Met level, extraordinarily famous. But at the regional level, I don't think we have the same. I think the goal is different. I think the goal is not to highlight the singer as much as it is to highlight the work and highlight the the art form and the actual the production itself not and i don't mean production in terms of the physical production but i mean the entirety of the thing the music the singing the orchestra the theater uh the chorus every part um and that's one of the reasons that i i sometimes prefer going to a regional opera house than going to the met or going to you know san carlo and napoli you know because there it's I feel like it's either about the singer or it's about the production. It's not about work. And, and that's the kinds of things that I like to be involved in. I like those uh, collegial collaborative things where the director and the conductor are working together to bring something wonderful to the stage. And uh, I feel that that happens more on the, this level, you know, at the regional level. Um, than it does necessarily at other levels. Not, not to say that it doesn't happen at the Met. I just feel like sometimes the, the productions are so big that you can get lost in them. And it becomes about the production or about the ind- one individual singer or two and not about the entirety of the work. Um, and that's the thing about this art form. And I did a lot of research about this when I was in school and when I was writing my book. And, and it was what I realized is that the guys in Florence who sat down around a, you know, a table and came up with this art form, were not really trying to come up with an art form to highlight singers or conductors or individuals of any sort. It was about theater. It was about telling stories in a different way. And it was about hearkening back to the Greek theater where, all the words were intoned and um, that's what they were trying to accomplish. So I feel that when we get back to more parity between, you know, the different elements of a production, that's when we get something really special. Agreed. Any thoughts, Elisa? Or shall I jump in? You, You can go ahead. Sure. Well, I was wondering... I just thought of this as you were talking about the congealing between the um, the stage director and the conductor, because these are two, in some ways, going into production, these two entities can have, you know, very different goals in mind. And that can make for a very, very difficult process, right? What do you, what would you say it takes to to have that kind of a relationship be magical because when it is like, it just is right. And you feel it as a production. I think it's uh, about people. And I think it's about the, the way the two elements approach each other. For example, I, I mean, I, all of my degrees are in music. Even my directing degree is in directing, specifically directing opera. Um, and so I studied music from the time I was 11 years old uh, until now. Um, so when I go into the room, I go as a director, I even approach it as a musician. I, I, I look at the score. I try to figure out what the score is trying to tell me. And 
And what I respond to are conductors who approach the music the same way. What are the words telling me about the score? What what is, you know, why did Verdi write this particular? I mean, these guys, the people that wrote these master works were theater musicians. They were theater composers. They were writing theater and they knew it. I mean, I've read their letters where they they talk specifically about how important it is that these people be good actors and that they be, you know, understand what they're saying and why they're saying it. And, and, and we step away from that sometimes and that's problematic. But when I work with conductors who are really focused on the totality of the piece, not just each individual note and you know, each how a singer turns a specific vowel sound or this or that and the other, but why they do it and why it's written that way and why this dynamic is this way. Those are the, those are the people that, that I really connect with. And, and I'm also, when, when I feel that they are with me in that way, I'm more willing, I'm always willing to, to, to try to solve of a physical problem that is causing a singer trouble singing something. Um, but I'm, it's not that I'm more willing cause I'm always willing, but I'm more happy about it when I feel that, you know, I can ask a conductor, could we take a little bit more time in the silence, uh, just to settle that moment before they go on to the next thing. Um, and what I find is that's true. I've, I've, as an assistant, I've also watched that happen and seen really good collaborations between directors and conductors. I've also seen really bad ones, like really contentious. And 90% of the time, it, there's nothing behind it but ego. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's not really related to anything the director or the conductor is doing. It, it's, it's more about ego and power and controlling the scenario. And um, I've seen it happen with singers, too, where they you know just decide that this is not the way they've done things in this particular role and they're not going to open their minds to a new idea. Um, and they've been resistant and fought against it. And, and so they're all – I think all theater, not just opera, but all theater – is a power struggle between the different elements. But I feel like it really comes together when people are willing to look at the opposite thing, you know, look at I'm, I'm the conductor, but I'm really looking at the words and, and the drama and what's being said and what it means and what they're try- trying to do. And when the director looks at the score and says, I'm really trying to look at what the music is telling me about what's going on in the scene as well. I think that's when it really comes together. That's interesting. That to me is like, that's sort of what empathy is, right? Mm -hmm. Like you approach something from a place of humility, like the part that I have to offer is just one part. Mm -hmm. And I will look at other things and try and understand, but, and, and that's in a way that, yeah, I feel like that's empathy. Like, what does it mean to, to see something from a different perspective and to actually take it into account. Right. Well, and the worst thing that you can hear in a rehearsal is no. And, you know, when someone says no, that means they're shutting the door to collaboration. And when they say, I'm willing to try it, it it may not work. I'm always willing to say, okay, if, if you're willing to try it and it still doesn't work for you, then I'm willing to look for a different solution. Um, 
So as long as the word no doesn't happen, then I think you can really find common ground because the one thing that we – there theater is compromise. There is compromise between all of the elements, between the singers, the conductors, the directors, you know, the production staff. Everyone has to find common ground in order to make – because it's not the conductor or the director who's most important. It's the art that's most important. And it's elevating the the piece that's really the most important thing. And when an inv- individual puts themselves above the work, then that's when you have problems. Um, and I, I try to stay real, you know, because as a, as a director, I, I sometimes, you know, I can't help but think my ideas are just brilliant. I, I have to step back and go, you know, <laughs> no matter how brilliant my ideas are, they're not brilliant as the person who wrote the thing. So I have to step back and not let myself ever think that I'm above the work. And I think singers also have to think that too. You know, we're here as, as performers, we're here to convey what someone else wrote and we're here to do that to the best of our abilities, but it's never, it should never be about us. It should be about the work and the art. I totally, I totally agree. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> that's okay. That's, that's, I mean, and that's a philosophical thing. And um, if anybody wants to disagree with me out there, they can. But I, I really do feel that that's, that's when we really get good, really special performances and um, really special things happen when we all sort of put ourselves in the position of elevating the piece, not elevating ourselves yeah, because it's not about you it's not about right. you it's not about me it's not about you know it's about it's about the character it's about what is this going to mean to people what could it mean like what what's the potential of this and when we focus on those things like that's that's elevating it to and that's what art is right mm-hmm. yeah it, it, true i mean it, there's very few art forms in which it's just one person uh, other than possibly a photographer or a painter. Um, there are, well, even then you're negotiating with the canvas, you're negotiating with light, you're negotiating with everything. It's not me. I'm the artist. Uh, I'm an artist in a larger group of artists. And so I, I do, uh, and this is something I think about quite a lot because I do feel there is, you know, there's some truth to the, no, I don't think it's a hundred percent true to the whole idea of egos in performing arts, but there is some truth to it. You run across some egos every once in a while and you, and my, my thought is always, we get to do something so beautiful for a living. Why bring all this drama into it? Why can I mean, let's enjoy what we do and, you know, find common ground and then move forward. And that's, I think, when things go well. Um, yeah. So. That's awesome. Well, this has been really fun. I don't, I think we, we probably could wrap up there because that's actually really beautiful. And We've talked about a lot of really cool things. Um, but before we go really fast, Alan, you mentioned that you wrote a book. What's the name of this book? I think you've written two, haven't you? No, I've written one. Um, I'm starting work on the second edition of uh, what's what called. Yeah, it's called Singer and Actor, Acting Technique and the Operatic Performer. It's um, it's a book about 
I, I basically, as I was mentioning before, I went through a bunch of different, you know, theatrical acting techniques and I sort of extracted the things that I felt uh, could work for singers and put that into one book. Um, and, and what I tried to do is establish a study method for, for people who are starting um, to learn a new role and to go into rehearsals. And it starts with, I tried to lay out like step-by-step, step, this is what you should do. This is the exercises you should consider. Um, here's, you know, Uta Hagen's nine questions. And I, I took things from Hagen and Meisner, uh, Larry Moss, Stanislavski, and, and put it all into sort of one reference. And, you know, it's interesting. I wrote that book 10 years ago. I think it was published in 2011, so not quite 10 years. And since then, I've taught a bunch of acting classes at different universities, and I've actually started to sort of hone in on some, like, really whittle out some ideas that weren't completely solidified. And, and um, in fact, my work last year at the University of Houston really sort of told me a lot about some adjustments I need to make. Uh, I'm hoping that it won't take me 10 years, but it's really hard to find time to rewrite a book. <laughs> so. Yeah, really. It's like writing it again. <laughs> so maybe that's exactly. why that, that's, you know, it's a second book in a way. <laughs> well, I mean, but it is. And also, you know, then I have to convince the publisher that they should put out the second edition and, and all of that stuff. But I, I am hoping that I can write in the next year that I'll be able to, to um, get the second edition ready to go. Um, but for right now, the first edition is just singer and actor. Cool. That's cool. Great. That's, That's great. great. Thank you. Hey, uh -huh. you, you could also, I'm sorry, I'm just, I was having an idea. I was like, you could also do like a pocket version so that all of the things that you've honed in on could become mm -hmm. like the little guide that people bring with them. That's, you know, like the four by six or whatever size book. And you just have it with you. I don't know. Just an idea. Well, <laughs> that is a good idea. They can always have it in their pocket. That's right. And, that's or right. On their phone. The pocket actor. Or, that's yeah. right. On their phone. That's right. What am I saying in a book? Duh. Yeah. What is <laughs> what year is it? This book you speak of. <laughs> so paper. Hmm. Well, thank you, Alan, for yeah, joining thanks, us. Alan. Thank you. Fun. Good. I'm so glad. Lisa, did you have any final comments or anything you want to add? Or Just thank you. Thank you for being with us. We haven't had anything quite like this before, and I think it's a wonderful addition to our archives. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Here, here. Cool. Well, everyone, have a beautiful day, and I'll let you guys know when we have this all ready, and, and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.